Project. And so next week we're going to get back to the scriptures, the pure teaching of the word. Bob is going to be teaching about the means of grace, specifically going to getting into the issue of baptism in Acts chapter 2. And he's going to be doing that for two weeks. And then what I'll do is I'm going to start the book of Revelation. I'll be giving you an introduction into the proper interpretation and structure of Revelation. And then Bob and I will kind of alternate back and forth. He'll do two out of Acts and I'll do two out of Revelation. And we'll just continue that as long as the Lord tarries and he allows us to do that. So that's our plan. But this week, notice, we're going to be looking at dilemmas. It's our last session in logic here, but Andy and I will be teaching logic from his studio. Now, last week, remember, as we looked at conditional sentences, we talked about there was four different classes of conditionals, first, second, third, fourth class conditionals, that enabled us to better understand how to interpret the scriptures. So last week, if you think about it, we were really focusing on interpretation, looking at logic. This week, we're going to be focusing more on the apologetic side, giving an answer for the hope that is within us with gentleness and reverence to all those who ask. So the focus today on dilemmas is to be able to use arguments to convince those who do not believe that, in fact, there is a creator. So that's where we're going to be going today. But before we do that, I have to tie up some loose ends with conditional sentences. Remember, a conditional sentence is simply an if this, then that. And that's what we've been dealing with time and time again. Well, now I want to bring up something called a biconditional. A biconditional is very similar, but notice there's an add-on, if and only if this, then that. And the significance of that is the condition, the if portion, remember we called it the protesis, is the only condition by which the consequent or the apotesis can occur. Okay, now, why is this important and why do we see this in Scripture? Well, Bob has some wonderful thoughts on why it is in Scripture that we do see biconditionals. I wanted him to share a little bit about that. Uh, we had talked earlier about why do we see biconditionals and why do we know certain times that we really do have if and only if. Yes, uh, thanks for calling on me, Eric. I wondered about this when I studied logic in seminary because this exact terminology, if and only if, doesn't show up. But there are biconditionals in Scripture. Exactly. And uh, the, so this has to do with the uniqueness of Scripture itself. Okay, so as Scripture being the very Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant and infallible. Yes. Many times a universal statement of some sort serves as a biconditional yes. because of its very nature. So if you think of uh, a good example would be in Acts talking about Jesus Christ, the only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Yes. Okay? Now that creates a situation of a biconditional even though it doesn't use the exact form we might be looking for. Yes. Okay, and so if Muhammad comes along we have to rule that out because it's supposed to be if and only if. That's right. If and only if is Jesus Christ and his gospel shall there be salvation. Amen. Okay. And you find other such matters where the very nature of the topic is unique to God, the Bible, and Christianity. Well said. Yeah, Jesus being the one and only Savior. We have biconditional now in the real world. These are pretty strong statements. Right. And 
oftentimes if they're used, they may not actually accord with reality. That's right. But we know in the Bible they do. And I'm going to give yeah. a couple of examples okay. here, too. I love your Acts for, yeah, uh, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. If and only if Jesus, then you're saved. And so, like yeah. you're saying, if there's any other, if anybody takes any other option other than Jesus, they won't be saved. Exactly. Um, the neat thing about biconditionals is they're actually easier than the conditional statements. Remember in the conditional statements, we had to worry about what? We had to worry about affirming the consequent or denying the antecedent. Well, in these rascals, we can do almost anything we want with them. Number one, the protasis and apodosis are interchangeable. Okay, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Number two, then, you can affirm or deny either one. In other words, you can deny or affirm either the protasis or the apodosis. It doesn't matter. Let me show you an example from Scripture. A fair summary of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, when, remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he explains that in order to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. A fair summary of that entire passage can be put in a biconditional. If and only if you are born again, then you are able to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the reason that's a fair summary is can anybody think of any other option available to enter the kingdom of God without being born again? There is none. So, Back to what I was saying earlier, a lot of times they, which would, uh, is yes. a divine necessity, if you find that Greek term day, must, in a statement, a lot of times this is what you have. Yes. Now, let me illustrate this. We talked earlier about more than one possible cause for the same result. Right, yeah. So let's uh, say somebody's safe. This person is saved from God's wrath and bound they haven't, at least making that claim or saying that. Right. Well, then they must have believed on Jesus Christ. Yes. And so asserting the consequent is not a logical fallacy that's as right. it would in a normal if-then statement. Yep, exactly. And that's what we'll see here. Even think about this, you guys, um, exactly what Bob is saying. Look at this. Normally, remember, it was a fallacy to affirm the consequent. The consequent is the then portion. Let's affirm this once. Remember, that's normally a fallacy in a regular conditional. Let's just affirm it, though, and say you are able to enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, you were born again. And that's not a fallacy now. Why? Because there's no other options in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's the strength of the if and only if. You see, before, with just conditionals where it says, if this, then that, it would be a fallacy because there may be other conditions in which you could enter the kingdom of God. Well, you, you know, you could have the, the consequent. Does that make sense? I don't want to say that there's another possibility for entering the kingdom of God. That's just this specific example. But does that make sense, everybody? Let's try another fallacy that normally would be a fallacy, but now is not. Let's try denying the antecedent. Remember, normally that's a bad boo-boo. But let's say you're not born again. We just denied this. Then you are what? not able to enter the kingdom of God. And because the if and only if clause there, we have a non-fallacy. It's the only condition. And therefore, you can do really anything you want to these conditional statements, either to the antecedent or to the consequent. The same thing would be seen then in John six forty four. If and only if the Father draws him, then he is able to come to me. Now, did we see that as an actual conditional statement? Yes, it's a third-class conditional. Remember, we called it a present general condition. The way the world is is such that unless the Father draws you, you cannot come to Jesus. But you can rephrase that as a biconditional because it's the only way. So you can, again, 
deny the antecedent, which is normally a fallacy. Let's just do that. The father does not draw him, normally a fallacy, but not now, because we'd have to then deny this. He is not able to come to me. We can do that. Why? Because it's if and only if. That's the strength of a biconditional. So you know from Scripture when you're dealing with something that there's only one option because God says so, you're dealing really with a biconditional. And that makes it easier. Now you can affirm or deny either side. Okay, so these are actually easier than what we've been studying. So from that now on, we're going to be getting rid of hypotheticals. We're not going to be studying them precisely, but we're going to be using them to construct dilemmas here in just a moment. But we have to first do a disjunctive syllogism. What in the world is that? Well, we've been dealing with hypothetical syllogisms. If this, then that. Now with the disjunctive syllogism, we're going to be dealing with either this or that. That's simply all it is. Let me give you an example. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. That's a simple disjunctive syllogism. Notice what's in red. In the red, that's called an alternate. That's one side of the equation. Either God exists, alternate one, or God doesn't exist, alternate two. You have only two choices. Now, to get a valid deduction from a disjunctive syllogism you're really supposed to deny an alternate. So in this case, let's deny the second alternate. God does not not exist. Therefore, you're left with what? God exists. Now, here's the issue. I want to put this up on the board. Affirming the alternate. Let's say we affirmed one side rather than denied it. It's a fallacy because it is possible for both alternates to be true in some cases. In this instance, dealing with existence, because we're dealing with existence... It's either or. It's like the law of excluded middle. Either existence or non-existence, there's no other option. But in some disjunctive syllogisms, it is possible for both alternates to be true. And therefore, you want to make sure you deny an alternate, lest you make a fallacy. Let me show you a very powerful fallacy that a man named Bertrand Russell made in a disjunctive syllogism. Who knows of Bertrand Russell? I know Bob and some of you have probably heard of him. Um, Bertrand Russell, born in 1870, he's an atheist. He's, uh, he calls himself an agnostic, but he was really an atheist. And he was also a very staunch liberal. He, you saw him oftentimes march in these uh, peace protests, so he was anti-war, etc. Well, he was very antagonistic towards the Christian faith. In fact, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And in that book, he gave a, a doozy of a fallacy when it comes to disjunctive syllogisms. This is what he said. He said, life was caused by either evolution or God. So notice, the one alternate is evolution. The other alternate is God. Okay, but now notice his fallacy. He says, life was caused by evolution. He affirmed an alternate. He said he didn't deny one. He affirmed that it's caused by evolution. That's a fallacy. And therefore, he concluded what? It was not caused by God. Now, why is that a fallacy? When, when you affirm an alternate, in this case evolution, isn't it possible that God could still be the cause and he used evolution? Is that not a possibility? And certainly it is. And certainly people, there are some who believe in what's called theistic evolution. Now, do I believe in theistic evolution? No, I don't really believe that he used that. But it's a fallacy and you could claim that. So if I were to attack this argument, here's what I would do. Immediately I would say, up oh, fallacy He affirmed an alternate. It's possible that God could use evolution. Okay, so fallacy, number one, it's an invalid argument. But number two, let's take issue 
with his minor premise that life was caused by evolution, we also can take issue with that and say, is it really true that life was caused by evolution? And I would, yeah, Bob. I would call it begging the question. Yes, exactly. He's asserting what he wants to prove. I ran into this same fallacy as a brand new Christian. I was born again in July of 1971. Yeah. And I was a junior, or at least I had the status junior because I was head of my my courses. I'd had two years at Iowa State. That fall, as I enrolled for my third full-time year, yeah. I had to take a class on philosophy of science. Okay. All right, I had never been exposed to this sort of thing, but I had sort of a postmodern teacher. This was 1971. Yeah. Okay, and he constructed this theory, and he and he asserted all knowledge either comes through the scientific scientific study or from God in under divine revelation. He said divine revelation is hogwash. Very much like Russell. Sure. No, there's no God. There's no revelation. Now let's talk about science. Yeah. And then he constructed a relativistic understanding of science. All theories are true in somewhere, maybe not in our universe. Yeah. And then he ma- said there's no such thing as truth with a capital T. Wow. Meaning, and so he went Was on that and true? the students are all saying <laughs> these farm boys and girls. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a new Christian. I'm, I'm zoned into this, dialed yeah, yeah. in, and it, I so I put my hand up and I said, "Well, Professor, you're saying then we can't know the truth." He says, "That's exactly what I'm saying." Self-refuting argument. Okay, so he rules out divine revelation, affirms in his mind that we can't know anything's true. Yeah, but here we are enrolled. Paying big bucks. Well, back then it was dirt cheap to go to Iowa State, but <laughs> we're paying money that seemed like a lot to us in 1971. Yeah. Um, and we can't know the truth, so why are we enrolled? Yeah. We were hoping to learn the truth. And it was less than a month later, I unenrolled and I went to North Central Bible College to learn the Bible. Right. And you can know truth. Because you can actually know truth. And then yeah. this guy was a, a, a postmodern. I know that many years later I'd be debating Doug Paget. And that very it was issue. very much like this wow. uh, professor that I'd had in '71, and I, how he had that wow. version of postmodernity that early in history uh, is a mystery to me. And why he was teaching at Iowa State, which was a conservative school, I don't know. But I challenged it. Yeah. He just said, "You cannot know truth." But then. How does he? How can he make this absolute universal statement? That's right. It's a self-refuting okay, somebody argument. Somebody may actually, if one person ever actually knew truth, they'd be shot. Is universal? See, a universal negative is one is is almost impossible to prove. Yeah. That's why atheism, at its core, is absurd. Right, because they'd have to prove there it, is no God. Well, if the person they'd have to have an omniscience. Yeah, if they they had to examine the entire universe and everything in and beyond the universe, and they have to be able to conclude there's no God, they'd have to be omniscient. That's right. And And only God is omniscient. That's right. Well said. Oh, you can have this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, Brian, we we got a seat up front. For you. No. Oh, they're looking for no, no, thanks. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Bob, for sharing that. Um, with Again, all I want you to see is that it was a fallacy here 
by him affirming, one, because it's possible that God could use evolution. But I would also take issue with the second premise here, that life was caused by evolution. And one of the books that I'd like to have everyone read at some point in their life is something called, uh, it was a book written by Michael Behe called Darwin's Black Box. It's excellent. It espouses a theory called irreducible complexity. And the basic point that he makes is think about the complexity at the cellular level of human life. He likens it to a mouse trap. Okay, now mouse trap is a simple analogy of the complexity at the cellular level. Think about a mouse trap. You have to have a holding bar that holds the, the bar back that kills the mouse. You have to have the striking bar. You have to have the wood and the spring and all these things. Well, take one of those components away, it ceases to work as a mouse trap at all. Okay, in other words, all the components have to be there at once. Well, look how much more complex the cell is within the human body and other animals. They're multiply more complex. And therefore, all of the systems within them had to be there at once, otherwise life would cease to exist. That's the basic uh, notion behind irreducible complexity. So I would attack then his second premise. So not only is this an invalid deduction, the second premise is not true. And so that's how we would attack it. And so that's one of the nice things by when you start putting things in syllogisms, you can start formulating how you want to respond. Okay, what's wrong with this argument? Well, it's invalid. He committed this fallacy. I'm also going to take issue with the second premise. That's not true. Let me build my case to show it. So then that's how you start construct. So if, let's say you're going to write a paper. You would start writing your paper. Show it's a fallacy. And then show what the true evidence is in premise two. Or if you're going to give a lecture, that's what you're going to do. You're going to formulate your response in that way. So this kind of helps you formulate your response to bad ideas when we look at it in a systematic way. Now, with that, I want to show you, um, this is, that was his book, by the way. Let me show you a good disjunctive syllogism from the scriptures. This is a summary of Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 19. Here, Moses says, you, O Israel, really have a choice between either life or death. If you follow Yahweh in his covenant, you will have life. But if you break covenant with him, you will have cursings, you will have death. And so then what Moses says is he denies an alternate. He says, you don't want death, therefore what? Choose life. Choose life and follow Yahweh. Keep covenant with him. That's the idea. Okay, so that would be a valid disjunctive syllogism. Now, with that, disjunctive syllogisms, we're going to leave them behind because what we want to move on to is dilemmas. Dilemmas are comprised of what we now know. Dilemmas are comprised of hypothetical syllogisms and disjunctive syllogisms. Let me show you how. A dilemma, first of all, has three parts to it. The number one part, the first part, that is, is the major premise. That's comprised of two hypothetical syllogisms. We already know those things. If this, then that. That's the first hypothetical. Then it would say, and if this, then that. That's all you'll see in the major premise. The second premise, the minor premise, is you'll have one disjunctive, either this or that, that borrows, now listen carefully, it borrows from the protasis or the antecedent, remember they're the same thing, the if portion, of both of the preceding hypothetical syllogisms in the major premise. It's either this or that, and then your dilemma or your conclusion is another disjunctive syllogism that forces the opponent to choose between the consequence that both follow from these two hypothetical syllogisms. Does that make sense? So you basically have two hypothetical syllogisms and then two disjunctives. Okay, let me give you an example because I figured it may be a little sticky wicked here. Let's use Pascal's wager. Who's heard of Pascal and his wager? Okay, well, he put 
non-believers in a dilemma? Here's his major premise. Now notice we have a protasis. If God exists, the implied apotasis, then I have everything to gain by believing in him. That's our first hypothetical syllogism. If this, implied then that. Then he just simply adds another one. This is hypothetical syllogism number two. If God does not exist, protasis, then, here's the apotasis implied, then I have nothing to lose by believing in him. So do you see how there's two hypothetical syllogisms there? Now, what he's going to do for his minor premise is he's going to borrow from the protasis in each of the syllogisms. The protasis notice God exists, or what? Or where is it there? There, God does not exist. Does everybody see that? So either God exists, or he does not exist. We simply borrowed the protasis from each if portion. If God exists, we put God exists. If God does not exist, we put that there. Does everybody follow that? Okay, so that's the minor premise. Now here comes our dilemma. Therefore, I have either everything to gain or nothing to lose by believing in him. Now, where did we get that? Well, we got that from the antecedent, didn't we? Notice, then I have everything to gain by believing in him. That goes right here. Or, I have nothing to lose by believing in him. That's the second, uh, second consequence. Does everybody follow that? Okay, so the two disjunctives right here merely follow from these hypotheticals. Does that make sense? So think about what he's saying. Think about the power of this. Therefore, I have either everything to gain or nothing to lose by believing in him. That's what he's saying. And it's a nice quandary to put people in. All right, now let's look at one from Scripture. Those are the most fun. Remember in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is debating with the religious leaders in Israel. They ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing all these things? And of course, where's his authority from? It's from God. It's from himself as well. He's God. But he's not going to answer them. He's going to give them a dilemma. He says, I'll answer you, but let me ask you, where was John's baptism from? Was it either from heaven, which is a circumlocution for God? Is it from God or is it from men? Because remember, they didn't like to use the term God, a lot of the Jews. So he just said heaven. It's a circumlocution. It's the same thing. Is John's baptism from heaven or is it from man? So he had them in a dilemma. And what we have recorded, and we'll see this when we get to Mark 11, the Pharisees start reasoning in their mind, and it's recorded the dilemma they're in. This is a summary of their dilemma. It's the major premise. They're reasoning. They're, they're in a circle. Can you imagine it be like an NFL huddle? Jesus is on one side of the football, and they're huddling together. Like, how are we going to answer this guy? And this is what they're reasoning. They say, if we say that John's baptism was from heaven, protasis, then he will say, why don't you believe in him? That's the apotasis. Okay, now, the second one. And if, here's the protasis, we say that John's baptism is from men, apotasis, then the people will attack us. You see the quandary they're in? That's the major premise. Now, the minor premise is just a disjunctive, taking the antecedents, the if clauses from both of those. That's all we're doing. We're taking the ifs from both of those and putting it now in the minor premise. So either John's baptism was from heaven, right? Do you see that right there from the if portion? Or John's baptism was from man. See that? So what's their dilemma? 
So either we're hypocrites for not believing, right? Why don't you believe in him if he's a true prophet from God? Or what, the people are going to attack us. That's the quandary they're in. They're between a rock and a hard place. All right, does everybody see that? Now, what I want to do is I want to construct uh, ways of getting out of these dilemmas. We're going to be looking at that. But as you're going to see, these Pharisees don't really have a good option. They're really stuck. And so they said, what did they do? They said, we don't know. We won't answer you. And what that really is in a technical debate is they're kicking the can down the road and they're simply not going to answer it because they were stuck. All right? They were in a dilemma that they could not get out of. Now, there's ways of answering dilemmas. I like to say there's only two. Some people believe that you can give a counter dilemma. I think that that's a form of a red herring. It's basically saying, I'm going to distract this person or the audience by giving another dilemma. I don't think it's really fair. It's not dealing with the issue at hand. So I believe there's only two ways out of a dilemma. The first is going between the horns. Now, notice this picture that I have. When logicians talk about being in a dilemma, the horns of a bull represent each option. And the idea is the horns, one horn is a bad option, the other horn is another bad option. So you only have two bad options to choose from. Well, one of the ways to get out of it, and that's why I like this picture here, it's going between the horns. And what that means is simply that you're going to take a third option not mentioned in the minor premise. Does the minor premise really eliminate a third option? Now, let's think back to Jesus' example. He puts them in an option where you have the baptism of John either from heaven, from God, or from men. Is there a third option? Well, perhaps you could say, well, maybe it was from Satan. But does that help them at all? Men is really unregenerate men. In other words, the the two alternates, you have one, it's either from God or it's from men. Well, the men, he's really referring to unregenerate men. And therefore, who really governs unregenerate men? The God of this age. It's really from Satan. And does that improve their status with the people? If the Pharisees said it was from men, they're going to be attacked by the people. Can you imagine what would happen if they said it was from Satan? So in other words, there's no good third option. They were stuck. They cannot go between the horns of this dilemma. Now, the other option of getting out of it is called grabbing the bull by the horns. I can't believe I actually found these pictures on clip art. I was stunned. It took me like five minutes. I was like, wow. I'm not much of an artiste at all, but I thought that was kind of clever. There's someone grabbing the bull by the horns. Now, what does that mean? Well, it simply means we're going to take issue with the major premise itself. Are both if-thens, do they really follow? Are they really true? Do they correspond to reality? Okay, so going between the horns is taking an issue with the minor premise, saying those two options don't exhaust the possibilities. Grabbing the bull by the horns is saying, I reject one of your, your hypothetical syllogisms in your major premise. Okay, now, the reason that's important is we're going to construct now a dilemma that we're going to put atheists in, and then we're going to look at how they might attack the dilemma that we put, in, put them in. And I think this is helpful. If you sit down with a sheet of paper and you put the things, if you write down your arguments, it'll help clarify where your opponent has to attack. Okay, so let's look at a dilemma that we can use against atheists. Now, an atheist dilemma, here's the dilemma that I want to put forward. Without a creator, and we don't care what the creator is or who the creator is at this point, okay, what we're going to simply argue up to this point is that there must be a creator. We don't care what it is. In fact, I was in a debate with an atheist at an atheist convention, and he joked, and he said, well, your God is like a flying spaghetti monster, and all the little atheists go, oh, 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 oh. But you know what? If he is, 
the, if, if there is a creator who is a spaghetti flying monster, when we start putting bones and flesh, as it were, figuratively speaking, on who this flying spaghetti monster must be, he must be powerful enough to put all that we know into existence. And he must be eternal. And all these different attributes that we see revealed in Scripture. So they laugh about it, but once you have them acknowledge there must be a creator, then you can start pointing out who that creator is. And that's why then you can pull out the Bible. But their first goal is to have them acknowledge there has to be something outside of the universe. So the quandary that the atheist is in without a creator, it doesn't matter who the creator is up at this point, this is their dilemma. We're going to use our major premise. If you believe the universe is eternal, then you violate the second law of thermodynamics. And if you believe the universe self-created itself, then you violate a law of logic. Okay? Now we're going to come back to it. We'll talk about checking our premises here. But let's get to our minor premise. Again, what's our minor premise? It's a disjunctive syllogism comprised of both of the if statements from up above. The universe is eternal, so either the, the believe in the universe is eternal, or what? The universe self-created itself. Does everybody see that right here? Okay, so you either believe the universe is eternal or that the universe created itself. Therefore, here's their dilemma. So you either have to deny a law of science, the second law of thermodynamics, or you have to deny a law of logic. You're either unscientific or you're irrational. And boy, do these scientific types at the atheist convention love to hear that. <laughs> okay? Now, that's the dilemma we constructed. Now, what are their options? Their options is they can try to go between the horns, right? And that means they're going to try to take issue with our minor premise. Now, our minor premise is either or. Either the universe is eternal or the universe created itself. Is there a third option? Well, one third option that's been proposed over the, time, the, the years has been that all that we see in the universe is merely an illusion. Has anybody ever heard of Rene Descartes? Rene Descartes' famous saying, I think, therefore I am. What Rene Descartes was doing is he was trying to firm a, have a firm foundation that he could stand on to know other things. And so he started doubting even existence. But what he realized is that when he doubted existence, he was doing something. What was he doing? He was thinking, exactly. And nothing can't do something. And therefore, he had proved his own existence. And that's why he said, I think, therefore I am. And so the point is, there is existence. And if you doubt that there's existence, you're doing something. And if you're doing something, nothing can't do something. Therefore, you must exist to doubt. Okay? Quite frankly, if someone believes that everything is an illusion, I just don't talk to them. I just pretend they're not there. I just, <laughs> yeah, this isn't happening. I'm out of here. Okay, so it really isn't a good option. Yeah, Andy. That has its roots in, in Buddhism. It does. This idea that everything's an illusion. Thank you. That's exactly right. It's an Eastern, Eastern concept, and it's irrational. Yeah, so quite frankly, they don't have a good third option. So they're stuck there. Now, let's, go, let's say they try to grab the bull by the horns. They're going to have to take issue with our major premise. Now, let's think about each of these. Let's take a look at the first hypothetical. If you believe the universe is eternal... Then you violate the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics states that all energy in a closed system is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state, meaning that all energy is in decay. The first law of thermodynamics says that we have the total amount of energy is not increasing or decreasing. We have the same amount, but the second law says that that amount is in decay. 
So here's the quandary. If you have an infinite lifespan of a universe, how can you have a finite supply of usable energy? If you have to have an infinite lifespan of the universe in the past, and you only have a finite supply of usable energy, you'd be out by now. I wouldn't be speaking to you. The lights wouldn't be on and the sun wouldn't be shining. Okay, I think it's devastating. All right, so let's put that aside for a moment. And you guys, if you think of something revolutionary, you can take issue with that. But let's think about the second one. They're really stuck on this one. Notice it says, if you believe the universe self-created itself, then you violate a law of logic. Remember earlier in our logic session, I talked about a priori reasoning. A priori reasoning means you can simply rule something out without having to examine it any further. Because self-creation violates what? The law of non-contradiction. How can something not exist, and then all, which is a, a kind of an absurdity, something exists. I mean, you have non-existence, and then you have to have it exist at the same time to put itself into existence? That's an absurdity. So right there, what the law of logic, the law of non-contradiction says is you can't go there. You've made an error. You violated the law of non-contradiction. That's not an option. So the only thing that they could try to do is to try to take issue, I think, with this premise here. If you believe the universe is eternal, then you violate the second law of thermodynamics. And I, I don't think that's a, a good option for them, but that's what they would probably do. Now, let me just give you an... Oh, you had a question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you. They're working on it. Well, exactly. And so what are they doing? They're kicking the can down the road. Yeah. So we're going by the known facts. They're really appealing to something in the future. Well, something will come up, right? Yeah. You know what's surprising? I uh, had a friend, many of you know him, Jeff Framke. We like to go out witnessing together. And he thought it was fun. We're going to meet our wives for dinner. And he says, I know, I've got a great idea. Let's go to an atheist convention and we'll do some witnessing. I'm like, well, that sounds great, Jeff. Why don't we uh, just bore holes in our head with a cordless drill while we're at it, you know? But we went down to the atheist convention and we ran into a guy named P.Z. Myers. He's a, a doctor uh, of uh, biology from the University of Minnesota in Morris. And when I put him in this dilemma, I was stunned because I thought for sure he was going to take issue, at least try to, with the second law of thermodynamics, that if-then statement. But he tried to take issue with self-creation. He believes that you can have nothing do something. Now, did he use those, those words? No, he said that by chance this could happen. Now, chance, of course, is a word that describes mathematical probability. There is no being in chance, so he was really dressing up nothing with a fancy word, wasn't he? And I was stunned. Here is this man who gets paid by our tax dollars, by the way, University of Minnesota Morris, who said that nothing could do something. And all of his adherents were, oh, this is wonderful. And I thought, this guy has greater faith than I do. He believes in magic, where I believe in an eternal God that's consistent with the second law of thermodynamics and with the law of non-contradiction. Yeah, Mike. Just to try and put a, a label or a name or something on this, don't they appeal to quantum physics and they the do. possibility of multi-universes and they try and sound real smart and intimidate yeah. us, and, but it's all the same thing, kicking the can down the road. And, exactly. Right, but... Well so. said, Mike. Yeah, well, let me deal with the quantum physics for just a... Yeah. I was just going to say that that's absolutely absurd because when they uh, appeal to science in the first place, the definition of the universe is all that exists that is... a capable of being observed. So by definition, a multiverse is not observable. 
And so if you use their own definition of universe and the own definition of the word science, they've excluded multiverse from even being a possibility. That's right. It's faith. It's, it's no more, by their reasoning, it's no more likely than God. Exactly. Well said. Quantum physics is a ruse. Bob has a wonderful um, article by a man named, was it Ray Stutman? Was that his name? Yeah, Dr. Um, Stutman is a physicist from Australia yeah. that I met at a think tank out in California. And he had a brilliant PowerPoint about what's knowable through um, quantum physics and the indeterminacy principle and everything that can be known. Yeah. And to give you the short version, what goes on at a subatomic level, you know, beneath, if I can say that, quantum physics was just simply. <coughs> Excuse me. Using differential calculus to predict where electrons are in our orbit, but we can see electrons. We know they're there. Yeah, that's right. Well, a, a lot of these other so-called subatomic particles can't even be proved to exist. Well said. Okay, and so once you get to the point of unknowability, that's where they dress up chance. That's where they yeah, start using and, chance. Well, you take somebody like Rob Bell, and he's trying to use that to prove that everything is spiritual. Yep, I dealt exactly. with that at a conference, and I contacted Dr. Stupman. I sent a transcript of Bell. Yeah, and he said his this, and he just refuted it point by point by point. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. But he's filling auditoriums, at least back then, with these young people who are wowed. They're they're <laughs> dumbfounded. They're they're following this Rob Bell like the Pied Piper. Exactly, and all he's got is absurdity. That's right. Well said. You know, um, to, back to the quantum physics uh, arena, the whole issue uh, really came about this idea that nothing could do something from Heisenberg's indeterminacy principle. Mm-hmm. And what that really has to do with, it's this simple. When an electron moved from one orbit to another, what Heisenberg said is it happened by chance. And this is Einstein's famous rebuttal. He says, God does not play dice with the universe. A lot of people don't understand why he said that. They think simply that God... Or, or that Einstein was arguing that there must be a God. But he was saying something more profound than that. What he was saying was that let's not dress up our ignorance of why the electron moved from one orbit to another by appealing to chance or magic, which is nothing. And let's just simply say, obviously, there must be a cause behind it because God doesn't randomly govern his universe. That's what he was saying. So here's the point. I want you to think about this. Having nothing do something is an absurdity no matter what level you're in, okay? Because it violates the law of non-contradiction. You can't have something not exist and exist to do something at the same time, the same relationship. So what they're simply doing with quantum physics is you and I can't get down to that atomic level, and so they're simply dressing up nothing with the fancy word of chance, but nothing can't do something no matter what level you're in, no matter if it's in the world that you see or at the atomic level. Okay, nothing can't do something. It's just that simple. I debated a guy at seminary, and he says, well, no, there's more to it than that. I said, nope, it's pretty much that. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing can't do something. You know, Einstein, as smart as he was, remember he made that uh, error in calculation? Remember he divided by zero? Smart people do a lot of dumb things, Heisenberg included. He just thought that nothing could do something, and he dressed it up with a fancy word called chance. He wants to prove there's uh, several things. One thing that he wants to prove is that there's unknowability, okay, 
at the atomic level, and therefore there must be unknowability post-modernity. But he also wanted to prove that there's, everything is spiritual. Everything comes from God. And so the quantum physics, this creative portion of nothing doing something, he claimed, is evidence that there's spirit everywhere. And it's yeah. this idea that everything is spirit. And therefore, he really blends the distinction, therefore, between God and the creation. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us into a pantheistic worldview. Yeah, everything is uh, God. Bell, uh, like a lot of contemporary neo-pagans, are really dressing up Eastern religion. Exactly. Because his inspiration came from this Ken Wilber, who's a, some sort of a pantheist, Buddhist, whatever. And uh, if these maybe non-existent whatever at the subatomic level are something, which can't be proved, then a wall is an illusion, a ceiling's an illusion, a chair's yeah. an illusion, everything's an illusion, which is just Eastern religion. Yeah. And it's sad. Using the physics seems to bridge the modern world with the postmodern relativism. Yeah, that's what And they're these claiming. young people are just sucked into it. Yeah. And he has a huge church and he's teaching the absurdity in life. And when you yeah. write very carefully, and thoughtfully and not being nasty yeah. to refute it, they just, oh. They go away, don't they? Well, <laughs> they, don't, respond. they don't try to debate right. and, uh, because they can't. Yeah. But they're banking on most modernists, that's what they would call me, yeah. don't understand what they're saying. So then they just say to the young people, your parents don't understand you and these yeah. people are all stuck in the <laughs> right, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. And Get then they suck church. them in Eastern religion. I just yeah. had a two-and-a-half-hour debate with my grandson, who's 18 years old, and he's defending neo-paganism and soul travel and astral projection, all of this nonsense. I just debated, 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 and pointed him to the cross and to the resurrection and into the scriptures. But um, this is a poison pill for everything. Okay? Schaefer predicted this in his book, Escape from Reason. That's right. Okay, pretty soon the term Christ or Jesus won't mean anything. That's right. You can't differentiate it between anything. You have a mystical spirit Christ who didn't actually come into human history. Right. Who didn't actually live a sinless life and who wasn't actually in real time and space before witnesses raised from the dead. Went back to that, I don't know how many times in those two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And his girlfriend is sitting there, so at least I witnessed it too. Good, two for one. Um, but I saw this getting down into the popular culture. I was watching a debate on Fox News Channel, yeah. and the conservatives had this uh, liberal just nailed on something. Yeah. And she finally was saying, well, that's your truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's my professor in 1971. Exactly. You have your truth, I have my truth. But then if that's really the way things are, yeah. how do we have commerce? How do we cooperate? We have the Tower of Babel and nothing else. Try that at a restaurant. To yeah. say, you know, the bill well, is... I ordered steak, well, and you brought me eggs and no steak. <laughs> well, that's your truth. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, and so the way Schaefer <laughs> nailed this was talking about these two stories. Mm, the upper the, story, yeah. You know, the upper and the lower story, the upper being the world of ideas. Yeah. Where you throw everything into the upper story except for basic life that you need to live. 
Exactly. And you live with the absurdity of, of a bifurcated or divided life that's not consistent. That's right. And so I would suggest if you have kids or grandkids that are into this, and I have a grandson who is, all right, uh, and he, a lot of his life was in my house, so I, I'm invested in this. Yeah. We need to understand the absurdities. That's why we're teaching this. We exactly. need to understand the absurdities and point people to the truth. And my favorite illustration is Norm, from Norm Geisler, frankly, when we had him in the late 80s yeah. with his apologetic conference uh, that I used to work with. And he talked about the new ager who doesn't believe in truth. <laughs> and so you're arguing the truth of the new ager. And the new ager says, well, I don't believe in truth. And Geisler said, well, that's like if somebody comes into your house to rob you and you have a gun. And you point it at the robber, and the robber says, I don't believe in guns. Shoot him anyway. <laughs> he says, go ahead and shoot him. The gun will still work. <laughs> okay. That's right. Now, the point is, that may seem a little harsh, <laughs> but the point it's is, reality. God created the world so that when God confronted Adam and Eve That's right. about their sin in the garden, he confronted them with truth. Amen. And Satan was the liar. Yeah. Truth is how God made us in his image to be able exactly. to see and know and live and function in this world. Use it, believe it, teach it. Don't worry. I, I didn't, it didn't bother me one bit that after two and a half hours I didn't convince my grandson. Sorry. I told him the truth. I don't know how many times. That's so right. there. And it's God's dealing yeah, with them. Yeah, Christ was raised from the dead bodily before witnesses. Amen. Therefore, all of this other stuff is false. Bob, that's an period. excellent segue, too, into this because we're going to talk. What I want to start transitioning into is why this matters, and I want to start talking about what, what should we do with these arguments. There are some who claim that we shouldn't use arguments to prove the existence of God. So let me just first of all begin by claiming that we should use these arguments, and I want to talk about why it matters. The scope of this dilemma that we just put atheists in affects atheists, but it also affects those in Eastern religions and those in polytheism. Now here's why. Atheists, of course, without a God who created all things, they're stuck with a universe that's eternal, which is impossible because it violates the second law of thermodynamics, or they have to have a universe that self-created itself. But think about this. So we know that about the atheists, but what about the Eastern religions that are pantheistic, meaning that everything is God? Well, that means that the universe is God. So those in the Eastern religions, the universe is God, right? But what's the problem with the universe being God? Well, the universe, again, would have to be eternal, but it's not or to have to self-create itself, they're really in the same quandary that the atheist is in, aren't they? And so now we've just gotten rid of all the pantheistic religions. We've really gotten rid of Eastern religions. What about polytheism, like that of the uh, Babylonians or those that hold to the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon of the gods? Their gods come out of matter. They proceed from matter. Now, the problem with that, of course, is, is matter eternal? No. Can it self-create itself? No. So therefore, there's no ground for being. Remember the statement, ex nil, nil fit? Out of nothing, nothing comes. Okay, there's no ground for being in any of these systems. You have to have something that's eternal. We know it can't be the universe, and therefore, all of the gods in the polytheistic religions come from the universe, and therefore, there's no ground for being. So we've really hammered these three. Now, what are we left with? We're left with the monotheistic faiths. Now, does that prove the God of the Bible? No, but that's what we do is we grab our Bible and we say, 
let me show you who this God is. Right? Just like Paul at the Oropagus. Let me talk to you about this unknown God. That's our goal. Okay, now, let me talk a little bit about... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Luann. I'm well, sorry. That's okay. I, I just had a couple of things, and you're kind of answering them, but I'm just trying to, you know, real basic for me. Yeah. But um, sometimes when you're talking to people and, you know, you're in the monotheistic group, and let's just say Catholics, because, you know, they want to pray to the saints, and the saints can do all these things for them. Yeah. And yet, um, if you talk to them about that and, you know, biblically why we don't pray to saints, et cetera, well, then the, it, sometimes you'll get them into the idea where, um, well, I don't believe all that, I, but I believe this part. You know, so they, they'll cut and paste and choose and pick. How do you address those? Yeah, you know, one benefit, Luann, is when you're dealing with a Catholic, at least now you're dealing with a special revelation, or you should be. In other words, what I'm really doing is I'm using the natural revelation, right? But there, at least, they'll probably give lip service to that the Bible is the Word of God. So now at least you can take your word of God and use it as a sword because they're presupposing that there is something supernatural, that there is a God. And so now it's a, it's a debate within the scriptures. And so you're not really having to use this type of argumentation. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So what I always break and when I'm de- coming up to somebody, I'm always thinking about what am I going to pull out? Which pistol? Am I going to use my natural revelation or am I going to use my special revelation? The goal is sometimes to use both. The, the, the real goal is to use the special revelation to give the gospel. Okay, but let me, and so it's a great segue. I'm glad you asked that question because I want to hit on why we would use these types of arguments. The importance of proving the supernatural. This is really the mindset of the atheist and those who hold to a humanistic worldview. Number one, they would say supernatural events can't happen. Okay, why? Because the universe is all there is. And so if the universe is all there is, you can't transgress the laws of physics. There's nothing beyond the laws of this, this world. Yeah. If the universe is all there is, there is no multiverse. Exactly. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so what they would claim is that there's no supernatural events. That's what they would claim. The resurrection is supernatural. It's beyond nature. Therefore, what? The resurrection can't happen. So what we're doing is we're taking issue with their first premise. We're taking issue with that, and we're saying no supernatural events can happen. In fact, just to let you know that there's been a precedent in Scripture for this, if you read 2 Peter 3 very carefully, and write this down, read it before you go to bed, Peter's dealing with scoffers. They're saying this Jesus is not coming again. He's not going to intervene in history, and therefore we can live any way we want. How does Peter rebut that? He says, well, they fail to notice that God has intervened in the past, and he starts with what? Creation. So he's saying, no, there is something supernatural. There isn't just this world as we know it. God has intervened in the past. And so I'm simply saying, yes, God has intervened. There are supernatural events. The resurrection is supernatural. Therefore, the resurrection can happen. By the way, this is a categorical syllogism. I'll be handling these with Andy at his place. But I want you to realize that this is a valid argument. But it's just not true. And so you and I have to recognize that to say, look, I'm going to take issue with this premise. Supernatural events can happen. So the reason why we're using the cosmological argument showing that there has to be a creator. You either have a universe that has to self-create itself, irrational, or one that's eternal, unscientific. The reason we're using that is to say there must be something outside of the universe. Okay, that's what we're doing. Now, let me talk about natural revelation and depravity because what we're really doing is we're using natural revelation to prove the existence of God. And the reason I don't shy away from doing it is because the scriptures themselves say that, in fact, this revelation is true. Notice what Paul writes in Romans 118 through 20, he says, For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I want you to take a look at this line here where it says, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The implication there is that these people see and know who God is, but they don't like it. They suppress the truth. In fact, notice right here it says, what may be known about God is evident within them. Evident is really the idea of being plain, phaneros. It's manifest. It's plain as the, the nose on your face would be our saying. You can see it very clearly. Okay, it's evident, phaneros. It's very plain to see. But I don't like this translation from the New American Standard because it says it's plain or evident within them. Here's not a dative that has to do with penetration into the person. This isn't a subjective feeling. It would be better translated evident to them. It's evident to them. Why? Because it's plain as day. How can you explain this universe without a creator? But notice you have an explanatory for. Paul goes on. He says it's plain to them for God made it plain, phaneros again, to them. So in other words, God did reveal himself. This isn't Eric Dalma blowing smoke saying we can use the natural revelation. Paul's saying God did reveal himself. There really is a natural revelation. In fact, so much so, all are what? Without excuse. And so if someone says, well, what about that poor aborigine in Africa who's never heard the gospel? Well, did they respond to the revelation they had? No. And what? They're not, they have no excuse. They didn't respond to the light that was given them. Now, also notice this line that I have in red. It says, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Think about, what does Paul claim that we can know about God? His eternal power. What did I just show you in the cosmological argument? There has to be an eternal being. The universe isn't eternal. So we used our reasoning to say there must be something eternal, namely this God. And so aren't we then, by using that argument, showing clearly what the natural revelation shows? Well, certainly we are. Now, the rub against using natural revelation is that in man's depravity, they suppress the truth. They suppress it, right? They will take the information that's clear and they say, we know it, but we'll suppress it in unrighteousness. But let me throw this out at you. Don't the pagans do the same thing? And I mean by that, all the unregenerate, don't they do the same thing to the special revelation? Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 3, verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19 John writes this, he says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The light that is being talked about there coming into the world, that's Jesus. And he is the fullest expression, therefore, of what? The special revelation. He is the word incarnate. And so the idea here in verse 19 is that when this special revelation, the divine revelation comes in, that's also being suppressed. Why? Because people love their deeds of darkness. You see, the issue is a moral issue. So let me just throw this at you. If someone is to say, well, look, you can't use the natural revelation to prove the existence of God because people will suppress it. Well, couldn't we say the same thing with the special revelation? That that also will be suppressed? We could. Okay, so what I'm claiming is we can use the natural revelation 
to show the existence of God. Um, there's two different camps within Christianity, a presuppositional and what I would call the classical camp. These are both Christians. In fact, they both come from Reformed uh, traditions. And so this is an in-house debate. But we both agree, both camps would agree that men suppress the truth. But where there's a disagreement between these two camps in apologetics is that the presuppositional camp basically says that men must believe in order to know. This is a man that espoused this was named, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Van Til, Cornelius. That's what I was trying to say, Cornelius Van Til. That's the one who first espoused this, this type of presuppositional apologetic. He says men must believe in order to know. In other words, a man left to his own devices cannot know anything truly without prior presupposition in the Trinity. Okay? But what I would claim is that men must know in order to believe. Okay? So do you see the the debate there? Now, the big debate then is, can we really use these natural, or should we use these natural revelation arguments to prove the existence of God? And I think we should. The big debate in Christendom should boil down on, or boil down to, how bad is our depravity? How depraved are we? Now, I would certainly agree that we're so depraved that the effects of sin, the noetic effects of sin, affects every aspect of us. But does that mean then that men cannot understand anything who are unregenerate? No. Think about back in Genesis chapter 3. The fall occurs in verse 6. God speaks after the fall to Adam and Eve in verses 9 on. Do the people not understand what he's saying? Do Adam and Eve say, I have no understanding of what he's saying? No, he speaks to them and they respond. They can still understand him. So the issue with depravity is not one of a lack of understanding. The issue is a moral problem. Okay, when the people see the creation, it's not that they can't understand it or perceive it. It's that they won't receive it. In fact, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2.14. This is a kind of a hotly debated passage about the length of depravity or the depth of depravity. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I would claim that the knowledge that he does not have in that passage, the natural man, is because these things are foolishness to him, because he's morally against them. And that's why I notice in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says the natural man does not receive them. Paul does not say he can't perceive them. It's not that he doesn't perceive it. He doesn't receive it. Why? Because he doesn't like it. He's morally against it. Okay, but that doesn't mean we don't argue. That doesn't mean we don't present the scriptures. So let me show you a case that I think shows us that the real issue in human depravity is not one in which men and women simply can't know anything unless they're regenerate. The real issue with moral inability is that they're morally opposed to the gospel. They may understand the words you're speaking, but they don't like them. And let me show you a passage that I think alludes to this. Bob helped me out several years ago in my theology in this point, and I'm really grateful to him for doing so. He showed me Jonathan Edwards and how he understood Romans 10, verses 6 through 8. Listen to the profundity here. Paul says this, and it's a quotation, by the way, from Deuteronomy 30. He says, But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, now this is Deuteronomy 30, who will ascend into heaven? And then this is his addition, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? 
The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What Paul is saying and what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy 30 is God has not asked you to do some impossible task. You don't have to go down to hell or somehow go up to the heavens. He's merely asked you to understand and, or to receive and believe the words that he has spoken. In fact, notice in red, it says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And so the implication there is when men don't believe it, they are what? Without excuse. They are without excuse when they don't believe in the gospel. What did it say in Romans 1.20 when they clearly see the revelation, the natural revelation? They are without excuse when they don't respond to that. So my point is they suppress the, the natural revelation. The unregenerate man will suppress the special revelation. So what are we left with? We proclaim, whether it's natural revelation, truth, or special revelation, truth, and God does the work. That's exactly what Bob was doing with his grandson. He proclaimed the truth, and if his grandson will come to faith, it will take a work by the Spirit to regenerate him, enabling him to believe. So I think quite simply, what we do is we proclaim. We proclaim and God saves. Another way to say it is we prove God persuades. When you prove the existence of God, you're really proving his existence. You're really doing it. Now, you'll hear some Christians say, well, any God that you can prove isn't worthy of worship. And my response is, where did you come up with that idea? Where is it written, thus saith the Lord, that any God you can prove is not worthy of worship? You can prove the existence of God, but the question is, can you persuade somebody to believe it? That's the real issue. So let me leave you with a couple of passages to think about. Let's talk about the divine revelation again. Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on him, Paul says, in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? What's Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying here that God uses means. If someone were to say, well, come on, Eric, no one was ever saved by preaching. Now, technically that's correct. But it's also incorrect. Why? Because when I preach or Bob preaches or anybody, any one of you preaches the gospel, God can regenerate somebody, enabling them to believe. Okay, so we proclaim the truth. Why? Because that's the means by which God uses. He uses preachers. He uses those who enable the preacher to go. How will they believe unless they're sent? Right? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings. So that's the, I would say Romans ten fourteen says, yes, we have to be preachers. Why? Because unless people hear the divine revelation, they won't be saved. But could we not also say that, yes, this divine revelation is suppressed and the natural revelation is suppressed both are suppressed, but we should proclaim both. What are we called to do in 1 Peter 3.15? It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify means you set apart Jesus as Lord. It's not the world that is Lord. You don't answer to them. You answer merely to Jesus. He's the Lord, and therefore you don't fear what the pagans can do to you. But then he goes on. He says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The term defense there, apologia, is a rational defense. It's a rational defense. So just as you and I are called to proclaim the gospel, yes, people will reject it. Certainly they will. But that doesn't mean we don't proclaim it. Maybe God will, in fact, grant them repentance, as we see in 2 Timothy 2. He might. But we also proclaim a rational defense, not because people can't suppress it. They will. But because God can use that to bring them 
to a point where you can bring out the special revelation. So the point is, dear ones, I don't think we should fall for the argument that we can't use arguments for the proof in the existence of God. We should do it all. We should use our natural revelation, and we should use our special revelation. We're, we're people that are armed with two pistols, and we should go in with all guns blazing because all truth is God's truth, and when we proclaim it, God can use it to save and to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That would be my take, and that's why I would be technically called a classical apologist. Uh, I believe that we should use the arguments for the existence of God. So with that, I'll be quiet and take any comments or questions, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. Yeah, Rich. Therefore, everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Yeah. So can I take exception that maybe it really is a deep secret that you can't understand unless God reveals it to you, like the deep meaning of the gospel? Like, we can't get past ourselves. I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good person, whereas the gospel says, no, you're not. But maybe that's what we can't get over, is that I'm a good person or a total depravity. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right, Rich. I, I think the issue is when the words are spoken to you as an unregenerate, it's not that you're... There, it's not as if the preacher is speaking Chinese and you only understand English and you have no idea what the man is saying. Um, we have something called the analogical usage of language. God speaks to us via analogy. Okay. Now, if you try to claim, well, I can't even understand the words that he's speaking, what you're really claiming then is that, you're, that this God is so holy, and I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y, He's so wholly other that there's no contact point with him. If that's true, then you can't know him at all. That's what the new uh, Orthodox are claiming, that God is so wholly other, there's no contact point with you and God. That's not total depravity. That's neo-Orthodoxy. The real issue when it comes to us suppressing the truth in Revelation isn't that we can't understand the words. It's that we're morally against them. Okay. Now, does that affect our reasoning process? It does. But it's not as if people can't reason or understand what we're saying. The ideas are so against it, they morally suppress it. And that's why Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30. He says, hey, God isn't asking you to ascend into the heavens or go down to the abyss. He's simply asking you to believe the word that is near you, that is, in fact, in your mouth. But they won't do it. Why? Because they hate the things of God. And that's what John 3.19 is saying. The light came into the world, but men loved what their deeds of darkness more. And so we make the distinction, therefore, I think, between moral inability and natural inability. If it's natural inability, then what we have to say is we can't even understand what God is saying as an unregenerate person. In other words, we can't even know the words. The words, it's like he's saying Google Gaga to us, and we don't know what he's saying. But I don't think that's the issue with depravity. And by the way, men like R.C. Sproul, they hold to total depravity. They would hold to the same view. This isn't a view that um, is somehow anything less than reformed understanding. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm falling down on my job. other weeks you're teaching people week after week after week what they want to hear all along anyway well said that's exactly right yeah bob always said he says you know whatever you preach the gospel you preach is the to save or get people in the the church is the same one that you have to keep preaching to keep them there so if you start with a message that's not the gospel and they're attracted to that if you ever start teaching the gospel they all leave and your building collapses because you can't pay for it so that's why they get stuck in that rut they began with the non-gospel. All these people came in and loved it. They have to keep teaching the non-gospel to keep them, to keep the lights on, and they can't get out of that cycle. Yeah. 
sad. Um, anybody, Andy, you had some thoughts? Well, you know what? I tell you what, we're, um, we're out of time, but I just want to encourage all of you to keep about contending for the faith once we're all handed down to the saints. Let me pray over us and also over Bob's sermon today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that all truth is your truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would use the uh, skills that we've learned here in this logic class to further articulate your word, your gospel, and a rational defense uh, for your kingdom and your glory. And we ask, Lord, uh, for Bob and his sermon today that you would open our hearts to hear what he has to say, that you would use the words of the scriptures to conform us to the image of your son. And I pray for my brothers and sisters as they walk out the door, that they would remember that they're entering into the mission world and that they would be those who have the lips, the gospel upon their lips and also a defense in their heart to give to those who are unregenerate, who need to hear about your truth and be persuaded to the kingdom by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.